Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at puremtgo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. How's it going, everybody? It is 10 o'clock in the morning on Sunday, December the 6th, 2020. And that means it's time for this, the 97th trip down the homeward path. And I know some of you reading the title of the episode will say, is it there? Is it there? Yes. The answer is yes. My name is Adam. Uh, and I've got a few questions for you before we get started. Are you a fan of Magic the Gathering? I mean, I hope so, since you're here listening to a whole thing, show, podcast, whatever, about it. Despite that, do you have something else in your life that is more pressing, more important, takes center stage over your magic affection? A partner children, job, career, any or all of the above. I know how you feel. I've got three of my, I've got, I've got a wife and three children of my own and work 42 hours a week. So like, I, I'm with you. I understand. Despite all of that, are you actively seeking to improve at the game in whatever way you can using the time and financial resources you have at your disposal to try to improve at magic? Because if that sounds like you, get your mana ready, because I'm about to try to give you a way to replicate my success. See what I did there? We're going to dive in here in a minute and focus on this week's edition of the three B's of magical improvement, budgeting, brewing, and breaking the bad habits. But first, we got a word from our sponsor, which is puremtgo.com. PureMTGO is one of the largest depositories of magic content on the web. They, they've got something for everybody. I don't I like if you haven't gone over there and checked it out yet. I don't know what you're doing. Uh, Commander, they've got you. Pauper, they've got you. Competitive sixty card formats, they've got you. Mental stuff, they've got you finance they've got you just go check it out uh while you're on the web you can head over to our parent network constructedcriticism.com uh i mean if you haven't been over there yet i don't know what you're doing with your life uh but mason and Allie continue to put out fantastic content spencer and michaela do a great job on arena mythic cast thank heavens that's back and common knowledge is introducing its new host. Patron of this show, Brad Van Hook. Brad, I'm still very, very, very happy for you. I look forward to your first episode. And speaking of things I can look forward to, that little email. If you support this show, you like what we're doing, and you want to help us keep doing it, Head over to patreon.com slash homeworkpathmtg. This show and every major piece of content I put out is always going to be free. 
But if you like what we're doing enough to help me do it directly, head over there, become a patron, take advantage of the rewards. At $1 a month, you get access to our Discord where we're talking about episode topics and deck lists and what weird nonsense I've been up to in the last week. Uh, At $3, your deck gets pushed to the front of the line for our Brew of the Week segment. At $5, I will write you your own episode about what you want every single segment and shout you out for what it is for being so supportive. So if that's something you're interested in, head over patreon.com slash homewardpathmtg. So without further ado, let's dive into our first segment. Our first segment every week is the budget spotlight where we highlight an uncommon, a rare, a mythic and a commander focused card. And our uncommon is going to be a little bit of a weird one. Uh, it's, is it Staticaster? For one, a blue and a red with haste. Can't remember if it has flash. I want to say it has flash. I'm actually at home today, so I can look that up. Let's see. But anyway, is it Staticaster is just a fantastic magic card. Uh, there it is. Sorry. Is it Staticaster is one a blue and a red buys you, come on, load. You can do this. Equipment is not cooperating today. One a blue and a red buys you a creature, human wizard. It does have flash. It's a zero three, so notable because a zero three, when we're talking in the context of pioneer, does not die to shock or wild slash, which is really nice. It's a wizard for things that care about wizards, whether it's wizards lightning or um, party type synergies or wizard tribal type synergies or human synergies. Uh, it has haste and it taps to deal one damage to target creature and each other creature with the same name. Now, it's a valuable piece of removal against token swarms or a fast redundant draw from the opponent. In other words, if your opponent draws, for example, you look at standard, sometimes you see the red deck drop a bunch of Akum Hellhounds early in the game. One or you know, they'll turn one Hellhound, turn two robber, turn three, other two drop, another Hellhound trying to set up the big Embercleave draw. Well then a static caster will clear out both of those Hellhounds. Um, it's just a, it's a valuable piece of removal. And then you look at one of the more, I'm not going to say popular because I really have not gotten a chance to play a lot of pioneer, but one of the more intriguing decks in the format is the Rakdos Pyromancer deck, because it's almost a direct port of the historic deck with young Pyromancer, Larissa, the dream Dennis companion, uh, Dreadhorde Arcanist, Croxa, and one of their key lines of defense against fast, aggressive draws from the opponent is Young Pyromancer making lots of tokens. And is it Staticaster deals with those very nicely? Again, it's both a human and a wizard for accidental synergies there. It's a human for the dedicated humans deck. It's a really good sideboard card against tokens decks that are going to try to wall you up or the Pyromancer deck for the same reason. It's 
a human, so it triggers Thalia's lieutenant to get a counter. It gets a counter from Thalia's lieutenant. It gets pumped by... Um, oh, I can't think. I can't think right now. Brain's not functioning. Uh, the general... The, the general, the new one from M21. The, the human, the new... I guess it's not legendary, so it wouldn't get pumped. But still, it's it's another human. Like, And then for the Wizards decks, like it's really good in the Wizards decks where it can combine with a Wizards Lightning to snipe down a 4-4 or just come down into turn, untap, enable you to play Lightning plus a bunch of other stuff. Like it's just, it's thoroughly reasonable as a magic card. Uh, for our rare, and now, is it Statocaster will set you back a grand total of 25 cents. You can do a lot worse than 25 cents for what I would consider to be a key piece of sideboard technology for either your blue-red decks or your humans' decks. Like, it's just a really nice, well-rounded piece of technology. It slots well into the modern humans' decks for the same reason as just... It's reasonable. It's quite nice. Uh, for the rare, we're talking Counterflux. Now, Counterflux is a little bit of a mixed bag. It is blue, blue, red, instant, can't be countered. And it says counter, uh, can't be countered by spells or abilities, counter target spell you don't control. And then for Overload, it's one blue, blue, red. And it's you may cast this spell for its overload cost if you do change its text by replacing all instances of the word target with the word each. So Overloaded, it is four mana, counter all spells. Or each spell you don't control. So there's a, there's a little bit to unpack here. Uh, first of all, on its face, with if you never consider the overload cost... Counter target spell you don't control. This spell can't be countered. That's last word for one less mana. It's one specific. It's, you know, all three is specific mana. Blue, blue, red. But it's last word for one less mana. It's. If we're playing blue, red in, in Pioneer and we're looking for a three mana hard counter. It's. It's actively better than neutralize. Uh, I guess there's there's some utility to disallow and neutralize that this doesn't have, but this makes up for it by not falling victim to either of those other cards. So like in a stand-up fight, stand-up counter war, this one ends the counter war because you don't care how many mystical disputes they have. That's not happening. Last word was playable in its time in standard at four mana. Like there were there were control decks that would play one to two copies of last word as a main deck staple. Dovin's Veto, which was a negate with the can't, this spell can't be countered clause on it, was a staple in standard. It was a staple. Blue and a white, counter-target non-creature spell. This spell can't be countered. 
So it would stand to reason to me, at least if you're contemplating the pros and cons of neutralize, disallow any of the other like hard counters with a, with utility, don't overlook counterflux. And then overload is a really nice thing to have in the back pocket for not for things like thousand year storm. Um, oh, what is it? What is it? Uh, Seagate storm caller, any effect that's going to put a lot of copies of a spell on the stack, the neoform deck, for example, in historic, if we ever get counterflux in historic, like I'm not going to say I'm not going to try it <laughs> just to, just to get, somebody you know that goes you know turn three on the or yeah turn three on the draw and they go storm caller neoform let's go and we have the counterflux up and we just get them like that seems like a good time right <laughs> seems like good clean living get that out of here but it answers Storm elegantly, which is relevant not just for Pioneer play or Historic play if it, once it, gets, if it ever gets added to Arena, but it's also relevant for Modern as a sideboard card in your Phoenix decks because you can get raced by Storm pretty reliably. So having a way to cut them off at the pass, if you live to four mana, you can just say no. That's pretty relevant. And then for uh, Commander, it's also super relevant in Commander. Where, you know, an opponent resolves Mizzix Mastery, puts a bunch of count, but puts a bunch of spells on the stack, and you just go, no, <laughs> you are not killing the table. That's it's elegant. An elegant weapon for a more civilized age. And counterflux will set you back about a dollar. It's a it's a relatively a relatively inexpensive piece of interaction. So you can do a lot worse than counterflux. Uh, moving on, our mythic this week is a relatively new addition to the game, and it is Riel the Everwise. Uh, Riel the Everwise is from Ikoria. She is one, a blue, and a red for a 0-3 legendary creature human wizard. So again, we got the human wizard thing. Uh, Riel gets plus one, plus oh for each instant and sorcery in your graveyard. Whenever you discard one or more cards for the first time each turn, draw that many cards. So first and foremost, in 60-card formats, this card is bananas with your traditional red cantrips. Because it provides a massive body and a fistful of cards if you get to untap with it. Like the first time Riel is on the table when you cast Cathartic Reunion, it feels like you're cheating. Because you discard two cards to cast Cathartic Reunion, it goes on the stack, you draw two cards. Then if the Cathartic Reunion resolves, you draw three cards. That's really good. That's really powerful. Or even, you know, waiting until turn five to play Riel into Cathartic Reunion as a catch-up mechanism. That's really powerful. 
Your last two cards in your hand are lands and you draw five. That's really strong. But even just as a large threat for three mana, you can do a lot worse. She's got a, she's bringing the pain on the front end. You know, you, it's a way to pay you off for playing a bunch of instants and sorceries in a couple of different ways. Because traditionally, at least a lot of instant and sorcery decks want these draw and discard cantrips and they want cheap, efficient interaction. And Riel is a way to pay you off for doing both by making your cantrips better and by providing something to pressure them with while you're interacting. And in EDH, it is powerful with and a deterrent against wheel effects, uh, effects that make everybody discard then draw. Because if you, if you win, fall me, Ew. Okay, I'll discard four, draw four, then draw seven. Tough break. Now she's really, really big. <laughs> Ew. That's disgusting. And Riel will set you back a grand total of $3. Now, in, in keeping in mind the way this card is used, the way this card is the way this card slots into your deck, you're very rarely going to want four of them because it's legendary. It's the kind of card that if you untap with it, you will win the game, but not in short order. So multiple copies can clog in your hand. Uh, and if you buy too far into it in 60 card formats, you can get punished. So you would rather have it as like an extra piece. It's think of it more like an extra Enigma Drake than the engine piece for the second ability. And then last but not least, for our Mythic, or not our Mythic, our Commander card, we have, this one's more of a, an MTG Finance speculation than it is an actual, like, hardcore, really good magic card. But uh, this card is from Ixalan, or Rivals of Ixalan, and it is Storm the Vault. Legendary enchantment, two a blue and a red. When one or more creatures you control deal combat damage to a player, create a treasure token. And at the beginning of your end step, if you control five or more artifacts, you transform it. And it transforms into Vault of Katlakan, legendary land. Tap to add one of any color or tap to add a blue for each artifact you control. Now, to put it in perspective... The, there, there's only one thing I really have to say about uh, about Storm the Vault. Have y'all checked the price on Talarian Academy lately? Like, this thing is nonsense, right? It's also banned in Commander. You, you you have to jump through a lot of hoops. The closest thing you get to a Talarian Academy in Commander as a as a as a card you'll have access to is Urza. And I mean, price check Urza real quick. It's kind of depressing, right? Thanks, Modern. We already know how busted Urza is in Modern. And playing Urza in Modern does not allow you to play or playing Urza as your commander does not allow you to play other colors that can benefit from the extra mana generated. 
so, I mean, at its core, I would lean toward Storm the Vault, just as a, as a general rule. Good Lord, there's a lot of cards with the name Urza. Come on. I'm just, I'm, I'm speculative on the price. The case, the fact of the matter is for Storm the Vault, you're paying $4 and it's a card you're only going to want one of because Commander. And also the price of Urza Lord High Artificer is $42. So you can spend a tenth the price of Urza. Get your Storm the Vault. And then play... Where is she? Come on. Play your 99-cent Joyra Weatherlight Captain as your commander and do the same kind of nonsense. Just play an artifact deck around Joyra and have way more fun because you have the money to buy more cards. That's kind of what I'm trying... That's the point I'm trying to drive home here. And that joke's not funny because I'm not driving today. I'm just at home. <laughs> but that brings us to the end of our budget spotlight and that moves us to our brew of the week and i am taking a i'm not going to say long awaited return but a return to standard nonetheless is it a return to standard yeah, yeah, yeah it is because we're going to talk about is it control now is it decks have not been a major part of the standard metagame and that's not really a, a shock to anybody right it's just, I mean, is it is not something anybody thinks about when they look at standard right now. The green cards are really good. Embercleave's really good. Uh, the rogues deck is pretty good. The Even, you know, if, if I get on the arena ladder tomorrow, I am going to play almost exclusively against Gruul, Rogues, Demir Control, and the, the mono-black Auras deck that people like to play because it preys on creatures. That's That's been my experience on the arena ladder. I will play against, like, six Gruul decks and eight Rogues decks and then, like, two of those mono-black decks. And then I might play against one deck I've never seen before or one deck I haven't seen in a long time. So with that in mind, it's important when you're building your control decks to keep those matchups in mind. And overall, the core concept of is it control is very similar to blue-black. Couple efficient removal with counter magic and card draw to slow the game down so that you can get powerful cards online to control it, to dominate the board state, and eventually run your opponent out of gas and beat them to death. Unlike blue-black, we're more focused on instant and sorcery matter cards to get us through the early and mid game. Cards like Seagate Stormcaller. Seagate Stormcaller creates an unreasonable amount of tempo with the burn spells that you can play in blue red. Because, and I say, you know, this is this is kind of a, a little bit of an of a controversial point to make. At three mana. Seagate Stormcaller into Shock is almost exactly the same as Seagate Stormcaller into Blood Chief's Thirst, unless your exact goal is to kill multiple copies of Soaring Thought Thief or Ruin Crab. When you look at the standard format right now, outside of those two cards, 
the most common cards you are using one mana removal on all die to shock. But sometimes the shock goes upstairs and you can kill them with it. But that also means Blood Chief's Thirst doesn't become a necessity from a deck building perspective. So it opens up the possibility of playing one of the other color combinations with Pathways. It opens up, you know. One of the weirdest cards that we get to play in this deck is uh, Experimental Overload. And it's not a card I considered until I ran into it. I can't take full credit for this deck because I ran into it on a random day playing Arena and I was playing Rogues and their burn spells killed all my stuff. No matter how many times, like if I played Call the Death Dweller, if I played Main Deck Lurus, if I played Lurus's Companion, their burn spells were good against my creatures. First and foremost, they were playing Shocks, they were playing... Uh, Blitz of the Thunder Raptor, they were playing Thundering Rebuke, they were playing Storm's Wrath, and then they just played Shark Typhoon and Experimental Overload. Now, what Experimental Overload does is two a blue and a red for a sorcery. You create an XX weird token where X is the number of instants and sorceries in your graveyard, and then you grab an instant or sorcery out of your graveyard, put it back into your hand, and exile the overload. So, early in the game... This thing is frequently going to just be a 4-mana 3-3 three, three that buys back a burn spell. And that's fine. That's the important thing to remember about that. If you've done your job early in the game, if you have three spells in your graveyard early in the game against Gruul, that means you've killed some stuff. You've probably killed a creature or two, and you've drawn a card through something like Frantic Inventory. So... Casting four mana, make a 3-3, three, three, get a card back is reasonable at that point in the game. Unlike Is It Decks of the Past, too, large creatures aren't unbeatable for this deck. You know, you look at a deck full of burn spells and you're like, oh, well, all I got to do is resolve a 5-5 five five because your Thundering Rebuke can't kill it, your Storm's Wrath can't kill it. Oh, but Blitz of the Thunder Raptor can Oh, but Stormcaller plus Thundering Rebuke can kill an 8-8 and can also just snipe down a Planeswalker. Um, that's pretty good. Or the idea of putting, you know, multiple four toughness creatures on the board. Again, in conjunction with Seagate Stormcaller, Storm's Wrath, Thundering Rebuke, Blitz of the Thunder Raptor. They're more difficult to kill. I'll grant you that. But from a, from a, you know, make the correct deck building decisions and it's not, it's, it's not the end of the world. You can definitely still lose to it, but it's not the end of the world. And then win condition wise, we are currently, the, the way we're killing people is Shark Typhoon either cycled for a big one or hard cast to make several and the weird token from Experimental Overload. I mean, it's all fun in games when the game when the board states clear. You know, everybody's just top decking, and then you just top deck an, uh, an eleven power creature that buys you back a counter spell to protect it. That's pretty good. <laughs> 
Like it's much better late in the game than it is early, but it's still defensible early in the game. And then obviously Shark Typhoon needs no introduction. It's a notoriously powerful magic card. But one of the reasons I decided I wanted to go down this road after I ran into it and then after I played some more, after I ran into it, is the synergy between Salundi Vision and Experimental Overload. One of the biggest problems I have with Salundi Vision in the blue-black decks is I can't find anything to kill you with off of it. If I'm playing blue-black, I can never Salundi Vision into a win condition. I can only find more interaction or lands via flip spells, which is one of the things that drew me to blue-black control in the first place, right? The idea of using those flip cards in order to get lands and keep my land count low, but then I get to play Vision to look deeper into the deck for more interaction. Well, now, with access to Experimental Overload, we can actually find a way to win the game with our Salundi Vision, which is really good. Because it can then buy back the Salundi Vision so that you can find another one. So, that's a big part of why I like this Is It deck is it's, it's similar to blue-black. It's got a lot of the same strengths, a lot of the same weaknesses, but it gets to take a little bit better advantage of its best cards in Shark Typhoon and Salundi Vision. Now, you're not going to get a card like Drown in the Lock and... Uh, what is it? Drown in the Lock and... I had it and I lost it. I had it. I'm just drawing a blank here. But weakness-wise, you are going to lose to Disruption plus Clock. A really good Rogue's Draw will just steamroll you. You know, they, they go Ruined Crab into Fabled Passage into Past Turn. And your plan is to try to sit back and, and, and react well, now when they go in step, Thieves Guild Enforcer, stack the trigger, you got enough cards in your graveyard, you've got to have exactly interaction spell plus counter in order to get it off the table. Well, then they can just untap and play another creature. And then you have to have another interaction spell plus another counter to force it through. And then you end up getting two for one all the way through the game. And you end up running out of resources, and it ends up being hard to come back. Decks that go really, really wide can get you because you only have exactly Storm's Wrath to catch up. That's one of the, the, the things that makes Blue-Black a little bit superior in that regard, is Blue-Black has a three-mana board sweeper for small creatures. Uh, Blue-Red does not anymore since the rotation of Flame Sweep. And I'm hoping that's something that can get rectified in Kaldheim, but, you know, that's a ways away. As it stands right now, we don't have anything like that. The closest thing we would have to that is Blazing Volley, which is one damage to each creature you don't control, which I guess theoretically can be used in conjunction with Stormcaller, but it's much worse without Stormcaller. But decks that go really wide can give you trouble because you have to keep using or using your removal aggressively and the more you draw of your two mana removal and not your one mana removal like shock and spike field hazard 
the less chance you have of keeping up before they get anthem effects on the board or you know a Winota or something along those something along those lines. And then you can stumble through the air in your own deck in the form of cards like uh, Frantic Inventory, uh, Salundi Vision. Like, I have actively whiffed on Salundi Vision in a deck that only runs, it's 23, maybe 22 lands, and then uh, it's two Gadwick the Wizened and three Shark Typhoon. And I have Salundi Visioned into nothing. But more frequently, you will like Salundi Vision into Jawari Disruption because nothing else you can take is relevant here. And it just feels bad. It just feels bad. As far as a sideboarding approach, you can adopt a tempo stance where you sideboard against the Control Mirror or against Rogues or something along those lines. You sideboard into Brazen Borrower and Bone Crusher Giant allowing you to apply pressure with counters up. Now, in those matchups, you would probably want to board down on Salundi Vision because it's not going to be as good. You will lose things to be able to get with it, and in exchange, you put in cards that it can't find. But otherwise, if you don't want to go that route, you can also just do the traditional control deck sideboard thing where you're playing a lot of generalized answers in the main deck and then you can go to way more narrow but really effective answers after sideboard. For example, against Mono Red, you can board into, uh, what is it? Red Cat Melee, you can board into... Uh, Additional copies of Mystical Dispute against Control or against Rogues. You can board into... Uh, draw on a blank, draw on a blank, draw on a blank. Um, well, I mean, honestly, Shredded Sails is still just a fine magic card, right? Even... It's one of the advantages to this deck over Blue Black, too, is you get access to Shredded Sails, which actually answers Great Hinge... Uh, Witch's Oven, uh, there's more, I know there's more. It also just like answers most of the creatures in the rogues deck because it kills Wind Robber, it kills Soaring Thought Thief, and it cycles when you don't need it. So Shredded Sails is another draw to this deck. It's like you, you get to play Shredded Sails without having to play the Croxa deck. And I like the Croxa deck, but I don't want to have to play the Croxa deck. But, you know, overall, that's kind of the overview of it. It's, it's blue-black control with slightly different advantages. But it's interesting. It's different. You will have people play very poorly against you because they don't understand what you're doing. Because most of the people that play Is It in Standard are playing the Prowess deck. So when you see Shocks and blue-red mana, you know, blue and red mana, there's, there's two schools of thought. You see blue and red mana, you either assume they're playing the team of ramp deck or you assume they're playing uh, the prowess deck. And neither of those things are true here. And opponents will play you incorrectly as a result. So that's one of the, that's the biggest reason why I love this deck. And that brings us to our main topic this week, which is the Is It League. We've talked a lot about them already. But who are the Is It League, really? I mean, we all know they're the Guild of Blue and Red Mana. 
but they were introduced to much fanfare in 2006 uh, Guild Pact, the second set in the original Ravnica block. And I vividly remember this because this was also about the same time that my cousin Cody started getting interested in magic. And it was in large part because of how the is it were depicted. And he didn't end up starting to play until the next year. Or, well, until the next fall, anyway. But it was the is it that got him interested because Cody, in, in his heart, is a mad scientist. In his heart of hearts, he's a mad scientist and we love him for it. Why is that relevant? Well, because the is it are comprised of your average chemistry lab partner from high school or college dialed up to 11. Like your, the take the average of your lab partners, you know, don't throw out the one that didn't want to be there. The, the one that only wanted to blow stuff up. Well, actually don't throw them out because some of the is it, that's what they're about. Where others experiment on living subjects, the is it do it with spells. So instead of doing experimentation on living beings, they are treating their spells, the, the, the artifacts that they're creating or the, the actual act of casting a spell as a living thing to be experimented on. Everybody adds a little bit of something to it. The is it are about creativity, about expression, about research, about reckless pursuit of knowledge. And they're secretly the vanity project of their founder, niv who now I guess technically has basically turned all of Ravnica into his personal vanity project, but that's a whole other thing. So when we're talking about blue and red mana together, what are the strengths? Well, first and foremost, you have flexibility, and within that range, you have tempo. What I mean by flexibility is there are a lot, and I do mean a lot, of ways to play blue and red decks, as evidenced by what I was talking about earlier. Even within the realm of a blue-red deck that's looking to prolong the game, you got a lot of different ways to go about it. You can play a blue-red deck that wants to wants to prolong the game that's playing Bonecrusher Giant Brazen Borrower to be able to switch gears in the middle of a game. You can be playing a version that's like the one that I've got that's very focused on the long game, but sometimes you still just kind of draw out. You get a good draw, and you just plop a 4-4 on the table on turn 4, get another removal spell back, and you're turning the corner. Uh, the combination of burn and counter, burn spells, counter spells, is one of the most timeless, tried and true, interesting ways to build decks that's ever existed. Counter, bounce, burn. Uh, it's it's similar to what we were talking about with, with Demir. It's a lot of finesse. You very rarely will win on the basis of individual card power. You're doing it with a little bit of synergy and a whole lot of understanding what's important in this game. My favorite decks that I've ever played in my history have been blue-red. Whether it was the, the teachings deck that I played back in original Ravnica Time Spiral Standard, where I splashed just enough black off of Dreadship Reef and Signets to, 
to touch on the flashback of mystical teachings. But otherwise, I was blue-red in order to use teachings plus Teferi Mage of Zalfir plus Niv-Mizzet the Firemind plus Ophidian Eye to draw my deck and kill you in my control deck. If you didn't do anything I cared about, I would just teachings my way through my deck and get all my pieces. You know, we'd, we'd end step teachings for Teferi. Okay, you didn't do anything? Cool. Here's Teferi. Untap. Land. Go. Okay, you didn't do anything again. End step flashback teachings. Go get Nibmizit. Untap. Land. Go. Didn't do anything? Okay. Un, uh, end step Nibmizit. Untap. Land. Ophidian Eye with counter magic backup. What do you got? Like, <laughs> was the, the first iteration of the Splinter Twin situation. And that's really one of the other biggest draws to blue red decks is you often will win the game in interesting and exciting ways, odd and exciting ways. The, the teachings deck at the time was, was pickles and you could play pickles with any combination with blue mana because Vesuvian shapeshifter plus bright elemental would eventually grind your opponent into the dust. But it was a lot cooler to win with Nimvisit plus Ophidian Eye because you won on the spot. The game didn't take forever. You know, when you were playing Blue Red Tron, you would win just as much with a giant blaze out of nowhere as you would by just playing a Kega on turn three or by, you know, clearing the board with Wildfire on turn four and then jamming more creatures down their throat. When you were playing Blue-Red Pyromancer, you would win the game just as frequently by uh, chaining a bunch of burn spells together and pointing them at their head as you did by grinding them into the dust and then eventually getting enough pressure to kill them. And then, of course, we have the beauty that is Is It Phoenix, where sometimes you just murder your opponent on turn four, turn three if you're really lucky, and sometimes you have to kind of grind it out, gr grind your way through it until you find a finale of promise and kill your opponent. It all depended on how the matchup was, how the cards flowed, everything. But it's interesting. It's exciting. Nobody really knows what's going to happen. And that kind of factors into the weaknesses of Is It? Because there are quite a few. When you look at is it the one of the key weaknesses that comes back time and time again is because your removal is predicated on red things. Your, your removal that actually takes something off the table permanently is usually predicated on red burn spells. And as such, large creatures are hard to kill. They're not impossible, they're just really hard to kill. And because of the things that typically draw us to blue-red, you can have this the tried and true synergy deck issues is what I have written down that you would have with say Orzov or Boros where you just draw the wrong half of your deck or you draw too many cantrips and not enough payoffs. You draw all your payoffs and not enough cards to, to fuel them. All the things you always run into with synergy decks. And then you're subject to more scrutiny because typically speaking, when you build an is it deck that is trying to do something that somebody else already does, you are 
basically the worst version of them. You know, a blue-red control deck that's trying to be a blue-red control is probably going to be worse on average against certain things than blue-black or than blue-white. You know, blue-white's better against larger creatures. Blue-black's a little bit more tempo efficient and has more disruption. But blue-red has other advantages. But why would I want to do that when I could just play what everybody's already working on and I can save myself some mental hours of labor? And uh, to that, I would say, first of all, you do you, take care of yourself, but also take advantage of the different advantages that you've got. And then you lack, again, the kind of unconditional removal from other blue color pairs. You know, white gives you the enchantment-based removal, gives you the bounce to to buy yourself time, and then you can set up the big, massive white board wipes that just clear everything. Black gives you point and dead removal, but you don't get as frequent a way to turn it into other situations. Like you can't blood chief's thirst will never be able to deal two damage to your opponent without a lot of help from your other cards. But it's, it's a trade-off you have to consider. So What's the mechanical identity of the is it? Well, they're printed mechanics. You have three, as is tradition with the Ravnica guilds. You have Replicate from the original guild pact release. A spell with Replicate, you could pay its original mana cost, and then it had a Replicate cost. Now, typically, at least on the early cards, that Replicate cost was its original mana cost, so you would be paying for it several times over. But for every time you paid the replicate cost, you would put another copy of the spell on the stat. And, you know, Pyromatics was one of the earliest cards we played to take advantage of this, and it was really cool. Um, Giga Drowse was another one that saw a lot of play because of its synergy in the Dragonstorm deck, you could Giga Drowse your opponent's lands in their turn, in their upkeep, so that you could untap and kill them, or you would end step Giga Drowse them to tap them down in order to untap and kill them, depending on the matchup. Like if you were playing against the Boros deck, you wanted to you wanted to tap them down in their upkeep so that you would be able to keep up with them. You wouldn't just die. And against the control decks, you would do it at the end step so that they, they would fight over whether or not their lands would tap down except you were going to get like three copies of Giga Drowse anyway, so it didn't really matter. I mean, that's kind of the, the long and short of the competitive pedigree of Replicate. Cool, not great. It's a really cool creative mechanic. Very, very, very is it. Yes, it is. The second mechanic was Overload, which was on Instance and Sorceries. It was an alternate casting cost that replaces the instance of each instance of the word target with the word each. So we already talked about Counterflux. goes from counter target spell you don't control to counter all each spell you don't control. But I'd be, I'd be lying. I would be not doing my civic duty if I didn't mention the granddaddy of them all. The card that has ruined more Commander games than any other card any Mana Rock ever printed. 
And that card is Cyclonic Rift. That card's got a pedigree. Whether it's competitive or not, it's got a pedigree. Uh, Cyclonic Rift, for one and a blue, is return target permanent. You don't control to its owner's hand. Or non-land permanent. You don't control to its owner's hand. And then an overload of six and a blue, so you return everything. All the non-lands you don't control. Just get it all out of here. That's, that's like the, the defining blue card for Commander. And I'd wager it was probably a playable card in its time and standard. I don't know. I did not play during RTR. I do know that Mizium Mortars was another one that saw a lot of play in its time and standard. Because four mana, four damage to, or two mana, four damage to a creature is respectable. Six mana, four damage to each creature and not mine. It's each you know, target creature I don't control or each creature I don't control. It's a game changer. So the fact that it had early utility and late game power to catch up, like that card's really good, right? So Overload had a little bit more of a successful start to its time, a successful round in the, in the competitive mainstream than did Replicate. And that brings us to the most recent Is It Mechanic, Jumpstart. A spell with jumpstart could be cast from the graveyard by paying its mana cost again, discarding another card, and then you would exile the jumpstart spell after you cast it from the graveyard. Now, there were two of them, exactly two of them, that saw any sort of reasonable play. And they were Chemister's Insight to a large degree because it was, it was a powerful spell to have in your arsenal in your control decks. Chemistry's Insight was really, really good. And then there was Radical Idea. Both of these were just draw spells. Basically, none of the other Jumpstart spells really saw any love. Like, I, I genuinely can't think of one of them that I ever wanted to play other than those two. So they had some competitive success, but it was because the cards were generically good. Like, Chemistry's Inside is four mana, draw two instant speed, and do it again from the graveyard by discarding my 12th land. That's, that's pretty good. That's something I want. Or when you're playing the cantrip-fueled Is It Phoenix deck, you don't mind discarding an Arclight Phoenix to draw another card with Radical Idea. But that brings us to some common tropes. Instead of just the printed mechanics of Is It, what are some of the common tropes of blue and red decks, whether they're on Ravnica or elsewhere? We have spells matter, instants and sorceries matter, non-creature spells matter. You know, prowess, the mechanics that we see in standard right now with uh, Seagate Stormcaller, with experimental overload with shark typhoon with uh sahili sublime artificer with young pyromancer all these things that care about you casting a bunch of spells you take a lot more game actions than your opponent and you will consistently get paid off for doing it more you have wizard tribal i don't know why but it always feels like this has been limited to specifically blue red there's definitely wizards in other colors, but the only ones I care about are in blue-red. 
Maybe there's something to that. I don't know. You've got Artifacts Matter cards. We already talked about Storm the Vault. We talked about Joyra. We talked about, like, there's Brunaclad in Commander. There's uh, the various forms of the Metalcraft decks in, like, Pauper. You have access to Galvanic Blast and Thoughtcast in the same format, along with a lot of Artifacts. It's no surprise the Affinity deck really likes those cards. I mean... There's just a lot to choose from. So, artifacts matter to blue-red. To the surprise of basically no one. There's a lot of evasive creatures. You see flying creatures from blue. You see unblockable creatures from blue. You see haste is a surprising form of evasion when you, when you, you know, your opponent clears the board thinking they're safe and then you just drop a haste creature and get after them. It's a weird, it's like a mutant form of evasion. You've got, uh, and then last but not least, you have a lot of copy effects or clones. And copy effects in particular are almost unique to blue-red. Whether on actual cards with blue and red as the mana cost, or on blue and red cards, like, individually. You see them almost exclusively, especially when it comes to copying spells on blue and red cards and basically nowhere else. You don't see a black card that's going to copy a spell without having some weird drawback that's going to hurt you more than it helps. So what are the typical archetypes when you look at blue-red? Well, first and foremost, I have to mention the most popular, the Spell Slinger. Whether we're talking about the Phoenix decks, whether we're talking about like the blue-red control deck that I'm playing in standard right now, whether we're talking about Pyromancer decks, whether we're talking about the Niv-Mizzet Perun Commander deck that I have. Spellslinger decks want you to play a lot of instants and sorceries and get paid off for playing a lot of instants and sorceries. You want to play card draw because you... You want to create a scenario where you drawing a bunch of card draw is valuable. You want to make a lot of something. Whether it's damage triggers, tokens, uh, additional draws from the deck, whatever. You've got the, the various forms of tempo piles. And this one goes to Delver decks, uh, Xerox piles, Phoenix. Technically, Phoenix is both Spell Slinger and Tempo Pile, but at its core, it's a Tempo Pile. Because you want to establish a scenario where the board's not out of your control. You put a bunch of Arclight Phoenixes onto it. And then you use the interaction and the instants and sorceries at your disposal to keep the board about where it is for the rest of the game. That's that's tempo. That's 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 the, it's a Xerox deck at its core. Because I realistically could have called this Xerox, but you know, there was also the blue red flash deck last year before the rotation of Brineborn Cutthroat, where we were combining, you know, Gadwick and Brazen Borrower and Bone Crusher and Brineborn Cutthroat and just every cheap instant and sorcery in blue-red that we could. You know, Opt and whatever. We wanted to be casting our spells on our opponent's turn as much as possible in order to make our cutthroat bigger. And then, lo and behold, 
it was a way to play tempo. It was a way to play this kind of amorphous, my, my speed depends on your speed kind of game plan. Whatever you're doing, I'm doing the opposite. That's the goal of a tempo pile. You have control decks over the years. They, Blue-red has a competitive pedigree as a control color combination, and nobody wants to talk about it. Blue-red Tron was one of the breakout decks of 2006 standard at the Pro Tour. Ironically enough, where is it made its competitive debut? It was a blue-red deck that played the Tron lands, and you just wanted to play, like, Kega or Moloku on turn three. If you didn't do that, you were going to clear the board with Wildfire or Pyroclasm and then set up some kind of draw engine. You were going to, you know, you know, tidings to draw for. You were going to just, you were going to control the board with shocks and volcanic hammers. You were going to use counter spells like remand or rewind. Muddle the mixture would, would transmute and go get you. I don't know what, I guess it would probably go get you a remand a lot of the time, but you know, it was, it was the kind of deck that you look at today and you're like, how did that deck win? And it's really not that hard to figure out. It just, it got to play the best creatures of its time, but then it also got to play leverage a tempo positive game because of its mana advantage. You had the, oh, was it the... Pyromancer Ascension deck during Scars of Mirrodin standard where Lightning Bolt was legal. Galvanic Blast was legal. Preordain was legal. Like, come on, that thing's fun. That card is fun. The ability to chain a bunch of burn spells together out of nowhere because you're playing cantrips. Like you just play cantrips. Uh, it was a deck that played the card steady progress because it proliferated and drew a card because you would proliferate and draw a card. And when you would proliferate the second counter onto your pyromancer ascension, well, it turned everything on. Now my bolt deals you six. Now my galvanic blast deals you four. If I've made three artifacts somehow, now my galvanic blast deals you eight. And it was, it was easy to find a way through and kill them by just amassing a whole bunch of cards in your hand. You know, Stagger Shock on the way in deals you three, and then on the way in on rebound, it deals, or deals you four, then it deals you another four. You know, it was, it was easy to find a way to win the game, but it was also easy to find a way to control the game. And then, you know, you could you could beat those creature decks by taking one of their creatures and killing them with it. And then you have access to combo, which is the, the macro archetype that the majority of people look at when they think about blue-red. I mean, Storm, the first time around, with access to Mind's Desire and Tendrils of Agony was largely a blue-black deck because Cabal Ritual was in the format with it. But it didn't really take off until we got Storm in Extended. And it hit its apex when we finally got another round of Storm cards in Time Spiral, 
and we got grape shot to go along with dragon storm and ignite memories and grape shot became an evergreen extended and then modern staple from there on because it's just like one of the coolest ways to kill somebody is to cast like 15, 16 spells on turn three and kill your opponent. But even without, even disregarding storm, you look at the history of magic and, you know, one of the earliest examples of a dominant combo deck was the blue red deck that uh, Kai Bood took to one of the invitational events. It was, it was either Bood or it was Finkel. I can't remember which one it was. I'd have to look it up and I don't want to waste your time any more than I already have. But it was playing the Illusions of Grandeur Donate combo. Illusions being when it enters the battlefield, you gain 20 life. It has a cumulative upkeep cost of a bunch of mana. And then when it leaves the battlefield, its controller loses 20 life. And then you would donate it to them and trap them under its cumulative upkeep cost unless they could gain life to get out from under it. Well, then in conjunction with that, they were playing just kind of a blue-red control deck around it. They were playing just, you know, a reasonable shell around it. You had access to the Deceiver Exarch Splinter Twin combo when it was in standard. Uh, Kiki Jiki Pestermite was a deck that poked around and extended for a little while. Um, oh, I'm trying to think. Now, obviously, Deceiver Exarch Splinter Twin and to a lesser extent, Pestermite Splinter Twin was a deck that floated around Modern for a very long time as one of the pillars of the format until they finally just banned Splinter Twin because they got tired of every blue-red deck playing it because it was so easy to include it. And then more recently, we've had, you know, I, I talked about the Pyromancer Ascension deck. I talked about... Uh, Oh, what is it? What is it? What is it? There was the Aetherflux Storm deck in standard. There was the God, what was another one? I mean, I would argue that the Neoform deck in Historic is technically an Is It deck disguised as a as a teamer deck. Like, if Neoform was was just mono blue, it would be fine. <laughs> no, it wouldn't. It would be even more busted, but that's a whole other thing. But combo is one of the things people associate with is it is kind of what I'm trying to get at. So for the overview, if you're looking for two colors that are usually competitive and fun, you don't really need to look any further. You know, you look at blue-white, it has a big competitive pedigree, but it's not known as being very fun to play. You look at blue-black, it's really fun to play, but it doesn't have a great competitive pedigree unless it's got busted cards. You look at uh, gruel, it's got a good competitive pedigree, but... A lot of people don't like playing against it. But if you want something that is rare, there's a lot of variation within the world of an it mage. So experiment, collaborate, and work to craft your perfect masterpiece just like the it mages would. And that's all I've got for this week, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we will be back next week to talk about the Simic Combine. I will be back to work tomorrow. So we will be back in the car for this week's episode. Uh, 
And if you've got questions, comments, concerns, send them to me at Homeward Path MTG on Twitter. On Facebook, my name is Adam Spain. You can send them to the Facebook group, the Homeward Path Finders. If you're a patron, don't forget to take advantage of the Patron Pathfinders Discord. Um, I'm also a member of the Heasy Game Media Discord for the, the whole network that Constructive Criticism is a part of. Uh, and yeah, that's that's kind of the long and short of it. So I will leave you with this. Same thing I do every week. It's the holiday season. The U.S. has just been through a brutal, divisive, ugly, filthy, mudslinging election season that still hasn't ended properly. And I say ended because one of the parties won't let go of it. But everybody's going through something. Everybody's struggling with something right now. We don't know what people are dealing with day in and day out. So the easiest way to make it better for everyone is remember the rules of wisdom as proposed by Peter Capaldi on Doctor Who. When you're dealing with people, never be cruel, never be cowardly. Remember that hate is always foolish, love is always wise. Always try to be nice, but never fail to be kind. So laugh hard, craft your spells, and be kind. We'll catch you next week, and be safe, everybody.